right. Um, okay, so I think you guys were mainly here. Most of you guys were here. Um, but if this is your first time here, um, I'm Eric. I'm your pastor. Um, and um, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series um, in 1 Corinthians. Um, and what we had discovered was that 1 Corinthians is about what happens when our lives um, are centered on Jesus the Messiah. And so when our lives are centered on the Messiah, we live our lives as God had always intended for us to live. Uh, not the old way of being human, but a new way. And so the hope of this series, as I had mentioned last week, is uh, that from a thoughtful reflection uh, of the story of Jesus in this powerful letter uh, from the Apostle Paul, our hearts would be shaped, um, our imaginations would be stirred, um, and our lives would be transformed by uh, to be what God had always intended his people to be. And so, uh, with that, I invite you guys all again to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul again writes. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God and always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, well, several years ago, uh, Jesse, my, my brother-in-law, uh, had told me of this one time, actually one of the many times, um, when he had tried to punk uh, Tim St. John. And uh, this story is a story that I have um, proliferated and, and spread like wildfire that makes Tim look great and Jesse, well, look like Jesse. Um, and so um, Jesse had told me at this time when he was still working at the conservatory, which is a coffee shop that I had also worked at. And the thing about the conservatory is that it roasted and sold their own coffee beans. And this was way before Torrance had even had, you know, specialty coffee shops. So the only way that my friends had purchased coffee was either online or through Jesse. Um, now, one important detail that you need to know about Tim and the conservatory is that Tim uh, likes his coffee lightly roasted. And the thing about the conservatory is that they roast their coffee pretty dark. Um, and so one day, Tim asks uh, Jesse to pick up, to pick him up like a, a bag of the lighter roasted coffee from the conservatory. Uh, but for Tim to ask Jesse to pick up a, a bag of coffee from the conservatory means that Tim was pretty desperate for caffeine. Um, and so Jesse, being the, you know, the kind of person that he is, he decides to troll Tim. Uh, and so he grabs the, the beans that Tim wants, uh, but he relabels the bag that the coffee is in, and he labels it French roast, okay? Uh, which is like the darkest roast that you can, that you can get at the conservatory. And, uh, and so Jesse arrives at Tim's house and um, knocks on his front door. And when Tim opens the door and he sees the bag, he just, his, his face just drops. And he says with a clenched smile, thanks, man. It's just like the, the most like strained thank you. Um, and then Jesse says, just kidding, I got you, Ethiopia. And, uh, and that was it. Um, now, why do, I, why do I bring up this story? Um, uh, well, it's because if you know him at all, um, Tim is probably the most thankful and gracious person that you'll ever meet, even in the face of people trolling him. 
Even when he eats, by all standards, a, a terrible meal, Tim will always somehow manage to find the good in the bad. He's exactly the kind of person who would not let the bad overshadow the good. And this is exactly what we see in the six verses that we just read earlier. And what we have to remember is that we are, again, eavesdropping into an ongoing conversation that Paul has been having with the Corinthian believers. So last week, we discovered that the reason Paul was writing to the church in Corinth wasn't because they were doing well, but because they were doing poorly. It was a church that was filled with a bunch of know-it-alls who were proud, uh, arrogant, and and loveless. Uh, It was a church that was divisive. It was a church that tolerated sexual sin that not even non-Christians tolerated. And yet, even before Paul talks about the bad, Paul just simply takes a moment to talk about the good. Paul was the kind of person who somehow always managed to find diamonds in the rough. And so here's a question I want to ask all of you. Who are the people in your life who are really, really hard to love? Who are the people in your life who are really, really hard to love? Maybe it's that really annoying, self-promoting kid in class, uh, or that person who constantly gives you a hard time, Or maybe it's even some of these people in this room right here. And among these people, can you list more than one or two things that you appreciate about them? The fact that we have difficulty doing so only exposes the problem, does it not? And so the question is, how can Paul be so thankful and even express confidence to a church that is beset by so many sins and problems? Well, it's because his life was centered on something more important than the problematic people in his life. His life was centered on something more important than than fixing people or having uh, to put up with nuisances. His life was centered and shaped by the story of Jesus, who who loved us and, and gave himself up for us, even when there was no good in us. And so in giving thanks to God for a bunch of people who are known more for their problems than their piety, we are shown a glimpse of what a life centered on Jesus truly looks like, a new way of being human. And so the key idea for tonight's message is a life centered on Messiah will look for the good in others and will look up when the good goes bad. A life centered on Messiah will look for the good in others and will look up when the good goes bad. First point is when there is good, look for it. When there is good, look for it. Take a look at verses four, uh, verse 4 again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, virtually every commentator points out that Paul is giving thanks to God for the very things that also cause him mo- the most grief. And what exactly are those things? We'll look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in, in him, in all speech, in all knowledge. And Paul gives thanks to God for the, for the ways in which they have been given speech and, and knowledge. And, and Paul is simply pointing out the fact that they've been gifted in how they communicate. In their eloquence, in their speaking ability, and how they have been given unique abilities by God to build up the church. And Paul is also pointing out that they also know a lot of stuff. And so what is the problem? Well, the problem was that they had misused their gifts. Instead of using their speech to build up, they use their speech to tear down. Instead of using their knowledge to help others, they use their knowledge to look down on others. 
They separated those with more knowledge against those who are less knowledgeable. And in fact, if you read this whole letter in one sitting, you might even wonder how Paul can find anything good about this church. And yet Paul is exactly that kind of guy who will often look for the good even in the midst of the bad. Because Paul is that kind of guy who will never let the bad overshadow the good. Well, why? Even with how they misused their gifts, why would Paul still give thanks? We'll take a look at verse 4 again. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul is able to still appreciate and affirm their gifts because of the grace of God given them. Paul was able to affirm the good before talking about the bad because he knew that the good in their lives was directly tied to God's work in their lives. And so rather than ignoring the gifts, he points out that speech and knowledge are the proof. They are the proof that God is actually working in them. And you know, I think we can all learn something here from the Apostle Paul. Because if we're being honest, I think we're pretty skeptical of people who are optimistic about others. Or at least I am. Every so often, um, there will be someone new to Lighthouse who catches the attention of the, of the pastors in the office. Uh, like Tim will be like, oh dude, do you know this person? Uh, like they'd be so good for youth ministry or, or children's ministry. And, uh, or Dave will be like, so there's this new guy and he's really good at the guitar. And my initial reaction is almost always, dude, you can't trust these people just because they've like, you know, memorized Philippians. Uh, that guy is a complete scammer. You don't even know them. You, like you don't know how they act in private. They're just tickling your ear. Like don't be so naive. And one thing, one thing that I've been actually sitting on and thinking about this past week as I was studying this passage is that Paul's affirmation of people, despite people's weaknesses and sins, challenges my own cynicism of other people. Paul isn't dumb nor naive. He's going to spend the next 16 chapters rebuking the Corinthians. But Paul's example challenges our skepticism and cynicism of people. You know, I think so many of us shroud and justify our cynicism and skepticism by saying that we're just trying to be discerning and we tell others, but you really don't know what this person is like. Or, I heard that they do this or that, so you should really watch out. Or, this person will never change because they've been like that their whole lives. What Paul is encouraging isn't naivete but genuine affirmation of the good that God is doing in a person's life, despite the bad, which is a theme that Paul will return back to in chapter 13. Despite the bad, Paul also repeatedly saw the good. Because in seeing the good, he was constantly remembering that God had started something good in this person's life and that God always finishes what he starts. And so again, I want to ask the same question that I asked earlier. Who are the problem people in your life? And who are the people in your life who are difficult to love? A sign of Christian maturity is if you can stop and spot the grace of God working in a person's life. Because if you are unable to, it says more about you than it says about other people. 
It says more about you than it does about other people. If you look at the people in your life as people who just need correction or people who are complete nuisances, don't be surprised if they're unwilling to share anything with you. In fact, don't be surprised if you don't have any friends at all. If we focus only on the sins or the problems of people, we'll find ourselves prone to criticism. Paul saw his relationship with people with the Corinthians as more than mere correction and rebuke. It was also encouragement and affirmation, a a real enjoyment of relationship with them. And in doing so, he created an environment where people were willing to share the hard and bad things in their life. Now here's what I don't mean by affirmation. Affirmation is not getting people to like us or to say things in such a way to get into people's good graces. Affirmation is not merely just giving compliments or saying nice nice things about people. That's not what affirmation is. Affirmation is actually being on the hunt. It is being on the hunt for anything that God says is good. Anything that conforms to his character and anything that resembles sacrificial love. Affirmation is noticing God's work or character in another person's life. And affirmation is also sharing what you notice to that person for the purpose of encouraging and edifying them. The goal in Paul's affirmation of the good was to speak words that would actually spur the Christians toward love and good deeds. Now, what about non-Christians? And this is where I think Christians have been historically terrible at this. Christians have been historically terrible at this, constantly blaming and wagging their fingers at non-Christians for all the world's problems. Last week, I said that we have forgotten our identity as God's called out people if we wholesale approve of the activity of non-Christians, but also, also, if we do not show compassion to those same non-Christians. So how should we point out the good even in a non-Christian's life? Well, since every human being has been created in the image of God, it means that despite sin, Christians and non-Christians alike still mirror and reflect God's image. The apartment that I had shared in college is the perfect example of this. Um, I had shared an apartment with four other guys in college, and three of us shared one bathroom. And obviously, uh, not all at the same time, um, but you can imagine that after, you know, after a while, the sink, uh, the shower, and even the mirror uh, eventually got disgusting. And I kid you not, okay, I kid you not, there was so much buildup on our mirror from toothpaste, spit, um, that it was hard to make out who was standing in front of the mirror. Okay, it was, it was gross. But despite the mirror being so defiled, you can still tell that there was an image in front of it. And in the same way, though though Christians and non-Christians have been distorted and defiled by sin, the image of God in humans still remain. And is the reason that we can still enjoy the friendship of Christians and non-Christians alike. What this means is that everything good that a non-Christian does shouldn't be written off as simply self-serving or motivated by sinful desire, even though it could be. Why? Because everything good, everything lovely, 
Everything beautiful, though inevitably stained by sin, still reflects the beauty, the creativity, and goodness of God. Everything good reflects the God who is good. Anything that reflects the character and goodness of God is worthy of praise. In, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul will actually say, whatever, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, anything, think about these things. As people whose lives are shaped by the Messiah, out of all people, we need to be the first people who are on the hunt to look for good in another person's life, Christian or not, despite the bad. That is what Paul models for us as he gives thanks to God for the problematic Christians, or for the pro- or Christians and Corinthians. And more than that, take a look at verses 7 to 8. In verse 7 he says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll save most of my comments for these verses in the next point, but one thing that I want to also point out is that even though Paul is aware of these problems and their failure, Paul pays more attention to what a Christian is becoming rather than their failures. What this means is that salvation and redemption is just as much a process as it is a status. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have been saved from the punishment of sin. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have also been rescued from the power of sin. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you will spend the rest of your life overcoming the presence of sin in your life. Which means that even now we are still experiencing redemption and renewal in progress. Redemption in progress will then mean that relationships with other people require encouragement, and patience. If you want to know the key to how Paul was still able to express thankfulness to God for these problematic Christians, the key is that Paul was compassionate and patient. He knows what it's like to sin. He knows what it's like to struggle. And he knows what it's like to be discouraged. In in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul called himself the worst of all sinners. And it was this kind of self-awareness that prevented him from being simply judgmental and hypocritical. And as a fellow sinner, it also allowed him to be moved and affected by their struggles. Compassion is being moved and affected by the hard and bad things in a person's life. And so if you find yourself unable to encourage and give thanks to God for the hard people and the difficult people in your life, simply ask yourself, do I even care about this person? Have I been moved by their struggles? Paul saw the bad, but didn't allow the bad to overshadow the good. He gave thanks to God because through the good, he knew God was working in them. And the big question that remains is, how? What does this look like for us? Well, here's a really easy one. Take a look back at the beginning of verse 4. Verse 4, beginning, it says, I give thanks to my God always for you. 
And so taking our cue from the Apostle Paul, he gave thanks and he did it often. And notice how he gives thanks to God always. Giving thanks to God for these people was a deliberate and repeated practice. Giving thanks to God will actually mean sitting down to think about the people that annoy you and to think about how, despite their annoyances, you are thankful for them. It can even be as simple as saying, thank you for sharing that with me. How can I help? Now, I'm assuming that most of us are pretty bad at looking for the good and the bad, okay? So let me give you guys some some things to look out for. The first is look out for character and virtue. Look for character and virtue. Look for for humility. Uh, Look for kindness. Look for self-control. And it can even be as simple as saying, hey, I noticed that you had picked up this person's trash, even though they threw it in your face, which is probably not you know, likely to happen. But be on the lookout for, uh, another is be on the lookout for interests in justice for the marginalized or even a good work ethic. These are things that we can even see in our non-Christian friends. Because again, the good that they do are reflections of God's goodness that are to be thanked and enjoyed. Even if it isn't often, and even if their actions are motivated by selfishness, don't let the unattractive features of a friend blind you to the good. Second, look for gifts and abilities. Everyone has strengths, and as we read earlier, those strengths have been endowed by God, which is what makes it good. So appreciate them. Point out the gifts and abilities that you see in other people. And obviously, gifts and abilities, as we've seen, can go sour. But they are nevertheless gifts from God used to serve one another. Third, look for hobbies and preferences. Whereas character and virtue and even gifts and abilities often go unnoticed, hobbies and preferences are usually what actually does catch our attention. What do people enjoy and what excites them? What people are excited about their hobbies I'm sorry, when people are excited about their hobbies, we are brought into their joy and often find ourselves enjoying the individual who's sharing those things. And you don't need to share the same hobbies with people in order to appreciate them. But most hobbies that we don't share or don't find interesting can actually be traced to a common source. Like, for example, like Megan loves BTS and I've come to tolerate BTS, but we both love, sorry, but we both love K-pop. I'm just being honest here, okay? Uh, Hey, but I love K-pop, right? (laughs) Fourth, look for spiritual life and maturity. And look at verse six. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so if verses four to five are about Paul giving thanks to God for the Corinthians gift of speech and knowledge, verse six is about Paul giving thanks to God for the Corinthians' proof of faith in Messiah. Paul encourages us to give thanks to, to God for the people that ask you to pray for them, or, or the, the person who asks you for help in resisting temptation, or the person who seeks your help in controlling their, their temper, or the person who asks you why you believe in Jesus. That is grace at work, redemption in progress, a new way of being human. You know, it's, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to see the good in our friends uh, or the people that we love. And it's also way easier to simply think that people just get on our nerves and just 
burn that bridge. But Paul here is modeling for us a countercultural, harder, but freeing way of being human. To see the good in all people when all of us aren't always good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a pastor in, in Nazi Germany, who would eventually be hung for opposing Hitler, said this, If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, much small faith and difficulty, if we only keep complaining to God that everything is so insignificant and petty, if we only keep complaining to him, and think that it's far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us in Jesus Christ. When there is good, look for it. Secondly, when the good goes bad, look up. When the good goes bad, look up. Take a look at verses 5 to 7. Uh, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul often uses his opening introduction as a way to provide a a roadmap of what he'll be talking about for the the remainder of of his letters. But here's what's interesting, okay? Uh, Paul starts almost every letter of his with an opening introduction, almost always expressing some kind of thankfulness for each church that he writes to. For example, uh, to the Romans, he, he thanks God for because of their faith uh, that has heard from all around the world. To the Ephesians, Paul thanks God again for their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. And to the Philippians, Paul thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. So when we come to a letter like 1 Corinthians, and it deviates from Paul's normal pattern of thanksgiving, that should grab our attention. It's like if I wrote a letter to everyone in this room, and in in, in almost every letter I write, I thank God for your faith uh, in Jesus and your love for one another. And and separately, I write a note to like Zach, and I'm like, hey, thanks for your shoe, man. Uh, Or for lending your shoe to me. And then to Peter, I write, hey, thanks for nothing, man. Just damn it. That should grab our attention. Um, It's like, so why does, why does Paul point out speech and knowledge? It's because in pointing out speech and knowledge, Paul recognized that what was most powerful in their community was also what was most harmful to their community. The Corinthians' greatest strengths would also become their greatest weaknesses. Throughout this letter, we find out that Paul returns back to the problem of speech and knowledge because of how often they had misapplied and misused their God-given gifts. And you can't, honestly, you can't help but notice the, the, the low-key roast and the sarcasm in the way that he says it. In verse 5, he says, In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. And then in verse 7, he says, So that you are not lacking in any gift whatsoever. But 11 times Later in the letter, Paul will ask them, do you not know? Implying that their knowledge and their use of their knowledge is actually incomplete. 
And so even though Paul doesn't directly rebuke them, he's, out, he's, act, he's actually indirectly starting his critique of the Corinthians' spiritual arrogance. So I wanted to talk for a moment to my Bible nerds, uh, to the so-called spiritually mature, uh, the knowledgeable, the, the people whose parents made them memorize two ways to live or whatever, and, and for lack of better words, the, the know-it-all, the people who are gifted. Here's one thing to add to your knowledge. Spiritual integrity or maturity is not determined by how much you know or by how much you or by how much you or how much you have but by how much you love. Spiritual integrity is not determined by how much you know but by how much you love. If you are unable to connect what you know with your life what you know has not yet seeped into your soul. So do not act. Don't even pretend. Don't act like you know if you can't prove that with your life. If a sign of maturity is that in the face of wrong, you can stop and spot the good in a person's life, then a sign of immaturity is that you stop and stoop to their level in retaliation. Knowledge Speech, Bible knowledge, gifting, smooth talking are all great things and have their role in building up the church. But remember that they are not the most important. Love is. Paul will remind us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love. Listen to these three words. I am nothing. The Corinthians had failed to see the gifts of God as a means to love the people of God. Do not repeat the same mistake. But what do you do? What do you do when the good goes bad? What do you do when the bad seems to overshadow the good? A question that I had about this text was how, how Paul, how can Paul express such confidence about a community whose current behavior is anything but guiltless and must call them to repent with the strongest kinds of warning? And I think a lot of us wonder, what do you do when people don't seem to be changing at all? You know, you say, you say and do all the right things, but you just don't see any change happening. And I think that can be pretty discouraging. But the reason why it's discouraging is because deep down, we actually do believe that change rides on us or our ability to fix people. Or if we just said a special incantation of words, if your confidence rests on yourself, you will try to manipulate and control people, which never successfully happens, or you will get so frustrated and eventually give up. If Paul's confidence rested in the Corinthians themselves or in his ability to change them, Paul, I'm pretty sure, would have quit. And so what makes Paul so hopeful here? The key is in verses 8 to 9. Verse 8, it says, Who will sustain you to the end? 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will never begin a work and not finish it. God will never begin a work and not finish it. God always finishes what he starts. When the good goes bad, Paul is not calling us to bank our hopes on others. He's not calling us to bank our hopes on ourselves. Rather, he is calling us to look up. Look up, Christian. In fact, the only way that enables us to look for the good in others is by looking to the God who is faithful and good. For most of the message, I had talked about how we need to look for the good in others, despite the bad, without considering what God saw in us. God saw nothing good or lovely in us. The the German reformer Martin Luther said that the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. But the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And one of my professors has said that these two sentences are the most beautifully constructed sentences that any Christian has written outside of Scripture. Why? Here's an example. Uh, When I wanted to date Megan, it was because that there were things intrinsic to her that I saw that drew me to her, uh, that made me muster up my courage to, to ask her out that um, eventually led me to asking for her hand in marriage. And while dating, I tried consciously to make sure that I didn't act like an idiot, which I, you know, did anyway, um, and, and prove that she made the right decision. Well, why? It's because human love is reactive. Human love sees something that it likes and is immediately drawn toward it. But God's, lo- but God's love is not like human love. God's love is creative. God set his affection and love upon us despite seeing no intrinsic goodness or beauty. If you think about it for a second, just, I mean, just think about it for a second. You guys have all gone, I think most of you guys have grown up in church. Why does God love you? Just think about that for a second. Why, why do you think God loves you? Not because you go to church or because you have believed the right things about him, or because you didn't sin. And therefore God says, hey, you look semi-desirable. I I want you to enter into my kingdom. No. That is not why God loves you. God saw nothing good or lovely in us and said, I am going to move toward them. I will trade my loveliness for their unloveliness. I'm going to do what no one could do and come as the Messiah and substitute myself in their place on the cross. And through my death and my resurrection, my love is going to make them lovely. That's what the love of God does. It makes that which is unlovable, lovable. And my love is going to purify them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My love is going to make them shine in this world. And my love is going to sustain them to the end. That's what makes the love of God so amazing. Because it precedes any human effort or desiring. 
And that's also what makes God's love so free. You don't deserve it. And if you don't deserve it, it means that the opposite is also true. It also means that you don't have to do anything to earn it. So we return right back where we started last week. That is the definition of grace. And that is also the definition of faithfulness. How was Paul able to see the good in others when things go wrong? It's because he knew that there was nothing good in him, and yet God loved him. It is, their, it is the love and faithfulness of God that enables us to see the good in others when their good goes bad. A life centered on Messiah will look for the good in others and will look up when the good goes bad. Because Jesus looked at you when you were only bad. And he loved you. And he made good inside of you. And he made you anew to be a force for good in the lives of those around you. And so we persevere. And we love. We, we, we praise and we seek what is good. And we look up to the only one who can make it right when, we go, when good goes wrong. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. It was a love that preceded any kind of human effort or any kind of human desiring. And in love, despite our sin, you pursued us. You made that which was unlovable, lovable, lovely. God, we thank you that we are loved by you because of nothing, simply because you chose to. And so, Father, we do pray that is in, in light of your love and faithfulness, that that would encourage us and help us to look for the good in others, even when we know that we are not good ourselves. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. We ourselves in Christ's name. Amen. All right.